Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Diana Lipsenberg. Diana is a registered dietitian with over 30 years of experience. She has a practice in Hermosa Beach, California. Today, we talk about binge eating disorder. Diana shares a little bit about her expertise on the topic, as well as her approach to treatment with individuals with binge eating disorder. Welcome, Diana. I've worked with you many times before with our clients that we have in common, and I'm so excited to hear about your take on how to treat binge eating disorders and how you approach treatment because it's such a common problem that we see these days. Yes. It's interesting. Usually by the time people come see me, if you can believe it, there's kind of three main reasons I see why my clients get stuck in even just what I call disordered eating, whether it's binge eating or restricting. One is just lack of truthful knowledge. A lot of people come in and they feel you know, pretty knowledgeable about nutrition. It's on every street corner, tons of blogs, tons of podcasts out there on binge eating and disordered eating. But when they come in to see me and we start really going over how the body and the mind works with food, they start realizing they're very, very knowledgeable about a lot of wrong information due to freedom of speech. Anybody can write a lot of that information. So that's one reason a lot of people get stuck in the cycle of the disordered eating or binge eating. Second reason is just the emotional eating that I don't know of anybody on earth that doesn't do some level of that, whether we're bored, tired, overwhelmed, a lot of us use food to kind of shove down emotion or they'll use food to feel more alive and, and celebratory in life. And then the third probably most predominant thing I see in my practice, why they get stuck is something I call diet deprivation backlash, kind of a weird word, but it's really where we're in a world that's very black and white in our thinking about nutrition. Today, foods are either labeled good you know, or they're labeled bad, or they're labeled healthy, or they're labeled junk food. And we actually get into trouble when you start using judgmental words to describe food, because before we know it, there's this tiny list of foods on the good food list, huge list of foods called bad. So we're bound to want a food on the bad food list. But then if we eat it, then we feel bad and guilty. And if, if we're a binge eater, then we'll eat even more to get out of feeling bad and guilty. If we're in a restrictive eater, we'll restrict to numb out from feeling bad and guilty. And then a lot of us say, you know, I'll get really good tomorrow, but getting good tomorrow means taking our favorite food. So that just sounds miserable. So it's a vicious, unconscious cycle that just started with labeling food good and bad. And we all have a rebel soul that we want what we can't have. So the more we've been raised or we even parent ourselves, like saying, no, don't stop only two more. We'll grab five more. And we don't even like the food that much, but that can lead to a lot of the binge eating. Got it. Well, let's do, can we just define binge eating disorder? How do you define binge eating disorder? Yeah. Great question. You know, there's a lot of different labels from years ago and now 
really the basic way of binge eating is eating a large amount of food in a very rapid way. And it also goes into the psychology of almost feeling disconnected from your body and almost the disassociation that you're not even aware of how much you're eating. It feels like you're out of control that you really can't stop. It actually is kind of a disassociation from the body. Hmm. And how common is this? Very common. It's one of the largest. For years, everybody just focused on women having binge eating disorder. And thank goodness we're now seeing a lot more treatment for men with binge eating, people with a lot of anxiety and depression. I think there's a, a line that crosses over. Some people say when they have a lot of anxiety or depression, they'll overeat and trigger some of the binge eating. If it's extreme anxiety, a lot of people tend to go to the restriction too. But I think binge eating can start from a lot of those three ways I discussed before is, and they're now seeing that a lot of disordered eating can be genetic in families. It can run in families. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people automatically associate binge eating that people with high weight or that people that live in larger bodies that automatically are binge eating. And that's just not necessarily true. A lot of us live in larger bodies genetically, medication, that doesn't always equate to that you're Well, you brought up a good point because I was going to say, you know, people assume, you know, they will classify someone else or themselves as having the eating disorder. They say, well, but I'm not overweight. And so why, you know, why would that person have binge eating disorder? If they're not overweight. So I think that's important to know that it doesn't fit a specific body type either. Correct. That's exactly because right. people automatically assume if you see somebody living in a larger body that they must have binge eating disorder. And that's just not necessarily true. Some people can binge a large amount of food and then not eat the rest of the day. And they really aren't gaining weight either. And then many people that have binge eating disorder have a precursor to lead into purging, whether it's through purging through exercise, purging through vomiting, purging through laxatives, different ways of purging. And, you know, we're not talking about bulimia here today, but a lot of people don't realize a lot of my clients lead into that purging thinking that will help manage their weight calories 70% of the calories are absorbed in the mouth so many people wonder why they're not losing more weight when they're purging mm-hmm. not realizing that purging isn't a solution to binging people think well i can just binge and then i'll purge it to be able to manage weight and don't realize that really a lot of the calories are absorbed in the mouth so hmm. Okay. So are you saying also, so there's binge eating disorders, there's periods of binging that may then move into out of guilt, possibly from the binging, then turn into different types of purging to kind of relieve that discomfort that then caused by the binging. So whether that's trying to purge calories through exercise, purging calories through vomiting, and the kind of that's where you go into the bulimia realm. Is binge eating disorder often a precursor to developing bulimia? Definitely it is. I rarely see clients that purge without binging. So it is definitely a precursor, but there, you know, it's definitely a question I ask a lot of my clients because some people end up getting, you can actually release a lot of endorphins through purging. And so 
it's not always, but majority of people, binging is a precursor, but there are some people that will purge an apple because they get so used to under eating and they're so used to not having any food in their stomach. Mm -hmm. And when you're kind of numb, you're not only numb from a hunger, but you're also numb from your emotion. And so a lot of them, the minute they put even an apple in their stomach, they'll call that full because they're not used to having any feeling in their stomach. So just having even a little bit of food in their stomach that overwhelms them like they're too full and that they need to then lead to the purging. Got it. Okay. So thinking about binge eating disorder, when does it cross the line into becoming a problem or binging behavior in general? And I know that depends on the individual, but how do you see that in terms of when that becomes detrimental to just someone's daily functioning well-being? I think binge eating becomes a problem. It's so individualized for that person that when it starts feeling like it's taking over their life and that they can't focus on other things in their life where it starts interfering in their work activity and their relationship that all they can think about is their next meal when they can binge again to get relief or the shame that comes with binging. Even just having shame takes up a lot of space in their day from having to really focus on things that are causing them distress in their life. So I would say individually when it starts taking over their life and that they can't live a functional life with work and getting up to go to work. Mm -hmm. And then obviously medically, many people with binge eating, they start having a lot of medical problems with acid reflux, irritable bowel disorder. So a lot of times that will flag them to go, wait, I've got to get a hold of this because now I'm starting to have other medical problems. And definitely if they lead into the purging, then after the binge, they can start rupturing their esophagus and start having Barrett syndrome and different other problems. So that usually is a big motivation to lead them. I see. Okay. So in one aspect, it could be the physical symptoms that are harmful and that are, and they start experiencing physical symptoms associated with that. But also when maybe someone notices the psychological component, right? Maybe they start realizing, okay, I'm binging because I feel this way. And I clearly want to kind of put a stop to that kind of link in behavior or treat what's the cause of why I feel that way. And then also, I don't like the way I feel after I binge because I feel guilty. And so that maybe also might be a reason why someone might say, you know, I want to get help with this because I don't like the way it makes me feel. Yes. There's multiple layers that will lead somebody to finally saying, okay, this is taking over and it's not really helping anymore. Like any addiction after a while, there's actual, you know, they get high off those initial endorphins that are released from binging. But after a while, like any drug, those wear off and they start realizing this isn't working anymore and it's causing more pain than pleasure. Like any of us motivate in, unless the pain of their behavior outweighs the pleasure, they just usually won't change. Right. So what is the role of a nutritionist in all of this? What are the interventions that you start with? What is the course of treatment? I'd love to know kind of how you work with someone through this process. Yes, really what a dietitian says specialized in disordered eating and kind of the steps that we look at. The first steps for me is 
to really identify what kind of disorder and what led them up to this. Is it partly lack of truthful knowledge? Is it mainly the emotional kind of numbing out or to trying to feel more alive? Or is it triggered by deprivation backlash? And that's kind of where I start. There's probably 500 tools out of that three umbrella that I work on. The first step with the education, a big part of what I work on is really helping my clients understand about the body and nutrition. Because if they don't understand about their metabolism and really understanding many people that have binge eating disorder come to me usually because of the distress of that, but a lot of times it is due to wanting to manage weight. They've maybe gained extra weight and they want to manage that or their doctor will refer for you know the acid reflux and IBS. So I really start with helping them understand their metabolism of what is their basal metabolic rate. And then I really work on the hunger scale of the science, uh, long-term study of understanding the hunger scale, the stomach literally works like a gas gauge on a car, zero beans, starving, 10 beans stuffed, helping them really start practicing mindful eating at the very beginning. Most people that have binge eating disorder are very disconnected from their body. Mm-hmm. Their head's over here, their body's over here, and it's helping them try to get reconnected to basic hunger. Thank goodness there's only two hungers. We're either walking toward food because we physically need glucose to ourselves or it's emotional. It's kind of nice to know there's only two options. And when I teach the the hunger scale that people want to start eating when they're about a two where they're comfortably hungry, the stomach is growling, where they're not letting themselves get down to a zero because the minute you pass below a two, when your blood sugar is that low, your body thinks it's going into diabetic coma and we're going to want to throw in food rapidly. And that, that can trigger a lot of binge eating when your blood sugar is that low. And then just because you're throwing it in here rapidly, it trickles in, trickles in and breaks down into glucose by the time it hits your stomach. But if we throw it in so quickly, a lot of time it doesn't register that we're full. And before we know it, now we're stuffed. And that's where then the anxiety of even being stuffed, it doesn't always make sense, but that's so uncomfortable that people want to go back and binge to get rid of the uncomfortable feeling of being stuffed. And that will start it all over again. So I really help them get back in tune to what just basic hunger and fullness that we were born doing even as a baby up until three studies show that we're pretty mindful eaters. We know we know how to honor hunger. We cry until we get fed and we stop when we're no longer hungry. You see infants and toddlers hitting a spoon out of your hand. They'll clear food off their tray. They'll spit food out of their mouth. When they're done, they're done. You rarely will see a toddler overeat unless there's medical complications. So I really start with that scientific education of their metabolism, that if they're honoring hunger, and respecting fullness, that helps them start cueing in to what is triggering them to the binge eating. Is it getting too hungry? Is it emotional calming or is it deprivation backlash? And then we lead into then the type of food. So we work first start with how they're eating. Then we lead into what they're eating and really help educate them on understanding what carbohydrate rules are, the protein and fat 
with all these diets going on out there, especially the the largest one that's been around for years is the high protein, low carb. A lot of clients come in and they're doing these high protein, low carb diets. And they wonder why sometimes that will even trigger some binge eating because when you're not eating enough carbohydrate, carbs are the number one food that release serotonin from the gut to the brain. And when they're not getting enough serotonin, which is a great mood stabilizer, they're going to want to binge even more and not only emotionally not feel satisfied from the serotonin, but even orally satisfied because they're not giving themselves permission maybe to eat foods they enjoy. So when they do get that food, they'll eat a lot of it or binge on it because they haven't had it for a long time. So that's where I lead into the quality of food of really understanding the important role of carbohydrate. Number one source of energy, we need it. And it releases serotonin. Protein, we need that. That's kind of the grow food of muscle to repair. And then the fat is the brain component. You know, 60 to 70% of our brain is fat. And so when people start taking away any one of those foods, which a lot of diets always try to take one of those away, that I remind them that they need the balance of all three, that if you're just eating carb, you're going to be tired and hungry all day. And that can lead to binge eating because carbs turn into glucose very rapidly. And that if they're not buffering, since carbs turn in rapidly in your bloodstream, you want to throw in a little protein and or unsaturated fat to kind of dilute or water down your bloodstream. So it goes in and comes out real nicely, keeps your mood, your blood sugar, your focus real balanced. And that in the end can help prevent some of the emotional or binge eating that gets triggered. So kind of a long saga of how you're eating and then what you're eating really goes hand in hand. Right. So a lot of the work you do is kind of dissect why this is happening, right? And I mean, a major component of it is education. Very much so. The physiology and the psychology piece Mm -hmm. of it. So I guess I'm wondering what percentage of people you see for binge eating disorder just need that education and then they are able to kind of figure out a pattern that works for them in terms of their eating? Wow, that is a great question. You know, when I really think about it, it's shockingly high. It can be, you know, 40 to 50%, half my clients just understanding true hunger, physical hunger and fullness and not have shame around it, and then legalizing all food, that we need carb, we need protein, we need fat. When my clients really learn that we're not going to call food good or bad anymore, we're not going to call food healthy or unhealthy. People say, well, why can't I use the word healthy or unhealthy? But the minute you call a food unhealthy, and you yourself or your child eats it, they're going to feel unhealthy and bad. And then that can lead to more shame and then wanting to get rid of that shame feeling when we've helped legalize all food that we're not going to, there's no such thing as a bad food because bad means to cause harm. No food can cause harm. Too much of any food can, you know? So we try to neutralize the language around all food. And when that's so calm, their anxiety goes down. They don't need to use food to calm their anxiety, because a lot of their anxiety is from shame about eating the food, and they're so mad at themselves for eating. Then when they find out that carbs can't make you gain weight, 
fat can't make you gain weight. You know, gluten can't make you gain weight. Eating after seven can't make you gain weight unless you're overeating on any of those. That when they finally get relief of that, a lot of their binge eating to calm that anxiety just goes away. And I also, you brought up kind of using a different type of vocabulary. So earlier on, you used the word living in a larger body and I use the word overweight. And so I don't think you use the word overweight in your, that is not just not part of your vocabulary when you talk to people about this, right? Correct. Because we have, you know, obesity, you know, and overweight. Overweight means over a certain weight of what we think it should be. And when you think about it, it's like, well, over what weight? You know, those height and weight charts are a joke. They were developed years ago by, I think, I think it was Hartford Insurance. Really, they were never meant to be in the medical industry. They were developed to get quotes and claims for insurance companies. So again, it can feel very judgmental when even the the medical industry uses BMI, they're really doing away from that because a lot of my elite athletes and football players would be considered obese when genetically they're just living in a larger body. They have a lot more lean tissue and it's just not valid in research anymore. And so we're really trying to look at the health at every size that you can live in a larger body and be just as healthy, if not healthier than people that are in a lower weight body that were just not seeing that to be true. Years ago, when I was younger, Covert Bailey wrote the book, Fit or Fat, that you could either be fit or fat. And a lot of my clients that live in larger bodies, I have clients that run the LA Marathon that are in larger bodies. And a lot of my clients that unfortunately have dieted themselves up to obesity And due to endocrine shutting down, they will never lose weight. And so we've got to work on living in their larger body and loving their body and being fit in their body. Just because, you know, people think, oh, they probably just threw in the towel and they're just not going to be healthy. There's many better cholesterol, better blood sugar balance of a lot of my clients that are living in larger bodies than mm-hmm. my lower body weight clients that are starving themselves and restricting and having a lot of blood sugar problems and cholesterol problems. In fact, a lot of my anorexic clients, they have like 400 cholesterol because when you're restrictive eating, your body will overproduce cholesterol. So it's mm-hmm. we're really re-looking at the research around this. So it is a lot of the verbiage. And I teach a lot of parents to watch your verbiage, letting go of extreme words, good and bad, healthy and unhealthy, you know, fat. Even my clients that live in larger bodies, I use that word, but a lot of my clients, they just say I'm fat. I'd rather say fat than this disease state of obesity. And so unfortunately, you know, I really am trying to educate a lot of the medical world, especially physicians, because that's what they've learned. And a lot of my clients are scared to go to their doctor because the doctor creates shame and saying, at all costs, you have to uh, lose weight to be healthy. And unfortunately, you know, their motto is first do no harm. But unfortunately, just because they don't have a lot of education, we don't, not for them to be blamed, but 
I want to educate that industry because there are a lot of times the first place that my clients have a lot of guilt and shame because they've been put on these medical fasts of 500 calories. That is called anorexia. So why would we prescribe something for somebody that has actually become, you know, a mental illness and a disease of anorexia is happening in the medical industry saying at all costs, you've got to live in a lower weight body. You use this phrase dieting to obesity. Is that, did I hear it correctly? So Correct. I'm so, can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm, I'm really curious yes. about that. What happens is when you have been placed on a restrictive diet, most of those are putting you on a very low calorie diet. A lot of them are like 1200 calories. And if you think, let's just take an average woman, an average woman, five, two, five, three, their basal metabolic rate, just at bed rest to keep their heart beating and breathing, they're burning about 13 to 1400 calories just at bed rest to have their heartbeat and them to breathe. So we're putting these people on calorie levels that are below what their body needs for their heart to beat. So when you're under eating and making yourself ignore hunger and drop below that two on that hunger scale, when you drop below that two, your body's got to go somewhere for fuel. It will go to the carbohydrate in your muscle called glycogen and you'll lose weight. But guess what you're losing? It will lose your lean tissue. But people don't, aren't aware of that because they're just watching the scale go down and the medical industry is clapping their hand, good job, and everybody's complimenting them but not realizing a big chunk of that weight is muscle weight. Muscle's the biggest thing you're by that burns calories. So over time, your basal metabolic mm -hmm. rate starts going down. So what you were burning just at bed rest before is now even lower. And then these people get frustrated that, wait, I'm not really changing how I'm eating. I gained all my weight back plus more because now my metabolism is even slower. Mm -hmm. And so- mm -hmm over time, now we've shut down their endocrine system from burning up lean tissue that can lead to the binge eating because over time, when you're so malnourished and, and under eating and ignoring hunger, eventually that's going to lead to a binge eating disorder over time. And mm -hmm. so many, many people that come into my practice to lose weight will not ever lose weight because they've been on so many of these diets and have shut down their metabolism due to loss of muscle and, you know, can do a lot of damage over time, losing myelin sheath in the brain, losing a lot of important part of our structure. So that's kind of what happens over time. So if that person comes to you, they might be disappointed to hear that your goal is not for them to lose weight. Bingo. Don't even use the word weight loss in my practice, no matter what somebody's coming to see me. I tell them when they come in, let's get you working on mindful eating. Cause that that's freedom. Cause most people aren't so disconnected from knowing when they're hungry, knowing when they're full. If they are not at their natural body weight through all the years of dieting or binge eating, their body will go down to their natural body weight, wherever that is. We don't really know. So when people are like, well, I want to lose weight. Okay, you can want to lose weight. That's fair. But focusing on the weight is not going to have you lose weight. That'd be so cool. That, that just doesn't work. We need to focus on, because weight feels like a problem to people. But if they're not out their natural body weight, 
it's because they're not in tune to hunger and fullness. They're doing emotional eating. They're struggling from deprivation backlash. When we just work on that, their weight will go to their natural body weight again, wherever that is. And we, people think they have control over all that. We really don't. We're born genetically where we're going to have a genetic makeup of where our body wants to be. And so people start waking up realizing for years, sometimes 40 years, they've been trying to shove their body into a weight that society says they should be where their body was never meant to be. And unfortunately it can rebound and cause a lot more weight gain. Interesting. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I know we've, we started with binge eating disorder, but really we're also just talking about just kind of general ideas about health and body type and kind of how someone sees themselves versus kind of their natural way of actually being and how those can kind of sometimes be at odds with each other and work against each other in some ways. One question going back to the binge eating disorder. So I heard, I've heard a lot of people do Overeaters Anonymous, these groups. What happens in those groups? And do you think they're helpful? Yeah, I love that question. Again, just like anything out there, I think it's very helpful for some people. I think being a part of a group, you can never go wrong with. Just being able to go in and share what you've been working on and what triggers you and everybody can share what's working on with them. The only part of some of the, I love the 12-step program. You know, I think a lot of the OA is very based on 12-step and and surrendering. And I think there's a lot of benefit to that. The only part I worry a little bit about with some of the OA programs, uh, I'm trying to think of the specific one where they are very black and white, no thinking, no sugar, no white flour, no white food. If you do, you're back to square one. You don't get a chip that week. It can create actually what we're working on is letting go of shame. And so I'm a believer in the 33 years I've been in practice watching my clients that many of that kind of program have the addiction model. And I like a little bit more of the recovery model where I'm not a believer so much that we're addicted to sugar and white flour because I see people, once they resolve deprivation backlash, some of their emotional traumas that they're using food, they're not binging on white sugar and white flour. So if they really were addicted to that, they would still be binging on that. But when they've resolved the deprivation backlash problems and some of the emotionally they're able to eat white sugar and white flour in a very mindful way. So that's my only suggestion that I say, you know, I don't recommend going to those type of OA programs where they say you have to, again, deprive yourself of those foods. And if you do, you failed and you're back to square one. And that can lead actually to more binge eating. Mm. Yeah. And the other, I mean, a little bit unrelated because I'm a psychiatrist and the treatment I can give for binge eating disorder is a medication that is FDA approved for binge eating disorder, which is Vyvanse, which is a stimulant. So I would assume you would think that would actually be not a great treatment for binge eating disorder. Well, I think some people really, that has gotten them out of the neurological pathway. You know how our brain gets neurons and it just creates like a deep groove and pathway, sometimes that Vyvanse 
can stop some of that groove pathway and create a new groove in their brain. Mm -hmm. And then eventually they can get off that vivance for binge eating. I work with a lot of clients with ADHD and ADD. So if they haven't known that they have the ADD and they get on vivance for the binge eating, they start realizing maybe then they start getting treatment for ADD and it's a godsend then that they start working on some of their impulse behaviors. I'm not a big fan of Vyvanse for everybody because eventually what I've seen is eventually that will stop working too if it hasn't created a new groove in the brain and they're solely putting all their eggs into hoping that it's just the Vyvanse and and then over time, once they get used to the Vyvanse, some of the binge eating comes back because they didn't really get into therapy and treatment for what was the underlying problem. Right. And I mean, I've worked with you before and I know you're very open about these things, but I often think, I mean, what is, I often am very cautious about using a medication to help with binge eating disorder because it doesn't often get to the root of what the problem is, right? And yes, it'll help decrease appetite, but do you really learn about your hunger and do you really learn about why you're engaged in behavior? So I guess that's kind of what I meant. I wanted to hear your take on medication. That's why I'm not a big fan of it because at the beginning, you know, being on those stimulants, it can take away your intuition of hunger and fullness and they just won't eat all day. And then that sets them up to under eating. And then especially when the Vyvanse wears off, it can rebound and lead to back to that binge eating again. So, right. Yeah. Great point. Great, great point of that using meds for that. Yeah. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. And I think I've learned so much about binge eating disorder and just the work that you do. And I hope the listener found it helpful before we say goodbye, any departing words or any resources that you think would be really helpful for people if they want to learn more about binge eating disorder and its treatment. Yes, there's um, the resources I love is the IADEP International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. They have just just plethora of resources out there for binge eating disorder. NIDA, National Eating Disorder Association. I believe binge eating disorder association is now under one of those now also. The Academy of Eating Disorder Professionals, AED, is also a really good resource for binge Mm. eating disorders. So those are some great sources out there. Great. Well, I'll make sure I add those to the list in addition to your website. And so thank you for enlightening me about about this topic and all the work that you do. And I'm excited to get this out so people can learn more about this. Great. Thank you so much. This has been Mind Stories with remote appointments in California and offices in downtown LA, Santa Monica, Hermosa Beach, Marina del Rey, Echo Park, and Santa Barbara. Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.